Hello and welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. My name is Andrew Ferris and I'm with you again. And this week I'm doing something that I, I actually don't think I've ever done before, which is to interview an, a, an outside person outside of our ecosystem. I've tried to stay away from this being an interview show. If you listen to it, because there's a lot of that and there's a lot of really good ones. And there's people who do a great job bringing on really high quality operators and uh, marketers and all and all the rest and talking to them. And so sometimes I'll bring in people from my team or talk with Taylor or something where we're kind of working on things together, but I haven't brought done an interview. And so this is a really special episode and it's for a um, specific reason, which is that uh, today I have on the show, Kelsey Lyric. Did I say your name right? You did, thank you. Yeah, great. Uh, that was a guess. I actually meant to ask you that before we started recording, and then I you, and then you did great. To make sure I got it. But Kelsey, there. Um, uh, Kelsey's the CEO of 365 Holdings. Kelsey, say hi to the people, would you? Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, and so, um, let me give you the genesis of this episode, and then we will jump into it. So, Kelsey um, is uh, is one of the few other people out there who deeply understand what my world is like um, at 4 by 400 because he himself is the CEO of a holding company that has multiple brands. So uh, Kelsey is based in Ohio and his team is based in Ohio with five brands. I'll let him say more about that in a second, um, but runs uh, five brands, very similar size in revenue top line to where 4 by 400 is. And Kelsey reached out to me, of course, on the place where I always tell you to reach out to me. And he and I have chatted a little bit here and there, but that was on Twitter. And um, basically said, Hey, what are you doing about product development? And I stopped him and, and we, the hope was to set up a conversation. I said, let's have that conversation about product development. Cause I am uh, green in this area. I think I have some things probably to learn. This may just be two guys who don't know anything talking. I don't really know Kelsey. You might know more than me. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, but it's an area where I'm also trying to get a lot better. So I thought let's just record the conversation in true e-commerce playbook style, um, where we will get it in real time. And if I sound like an idiot, that's all right. Kelsey, if you sound like an idiot, that's your fault, man. You knew what you're signing up for. And uh, we're, we're going to solve this live and it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, uh, okay. So it's an active thing that I was thinking about. Kelsey's thinking about it too. I said, let's just jump on and record the conversation together. We'll go from there. And that's what we're going to do in one second. And we'll jump right in. All right, Kelsey, for real this time. Hello, welcome. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I'm I'm really glad that you agreed to let this be recorded and, and put it out into the ether. I hope that it is as valuable for us here live solving the problem as it is for uh, the audience that listens in. And uh, I'm excited for it. So thank you. Yeah, me too. So so um, I, so before we get into the question itself, maybe go ahead and give people a little bit of background on sort of what kind of brands you guys are running and. Uh, any origin story you want to give, anything you want to give for context about what you guys are doing at 365? For sure. So we're based in Northeast Ohio. Um, five, actually, we just acquired brand number six, uh, six brands in our hold co. My business partner and I started it four years ago. I get the uh, kind of CEO visionary role where I get to do fun things like come on podcasts and try to solve problems. And he gets to run the business day to day with our team. We're really focused on vertical integration. So we've got between warehouse and office, a pretty big staff, and we handle everything in-house from advertising to site development to fulfillment, customer service, uh, and then also uh, product development, which is what, what brings us here. And so my partner and I were talking about planning for the second half of this year. We're setting up for Q3. And a recurring theme has been that as 
founders and entrepreneurs of a hold co. And I always joke that there's, you know, a handful of us out there, you guys at 4x400, us, uh, Bill at Elements Brands, like there's only, only a few of us, I don't think anybody's cracked this code yet, but we get to go to the owner of a small business that's successful, pay them a handsome sum for their life's work and they trust us and hand over the keys. But they were probably at some level passionate about the product. They probably understood their market uh, better than we can as the follow-on buyer and operator. So I might tell them we're better at Klaviyo, we're better at Google ads, we're better at supply chain. We, we can do all kinds of things better that a small brand on its own can't do as well as we can because we have scale and we have people and we have resources. What I think we missed though, and this is why I DM'd you on Twitter and how we got here today is how do we solve for product development? How do we figure out how to iterate on new parts of the market to better solve customer needs, accomplish our business goals, and continue to grow if we're not necessarily a passionate end user in that end market? Uh, our portfolio today is super broad. We have um, a survival food company. We have a business that sells DIY fermentation uh, supplies. So if you want to make your own sourdough or kombucha or, or yogurt, we have, we have those products. We have a supplement brand. We just bought um, a hair loss restoration brand. We have an outdoor products company and we have the largest retailer online for cloth diapers and sustainable parenting. So as you can imagine, it's hard to find one person and call them VP of product. And you have to learn everything from uh, nootropics to emergency food, to cloth diapers, to pocket knives and be an expert in all those things. So we've been trying to productize and formalize a process to get the team involved in that. And uh, I'd love to compare notes with you today on, on how you guys are solving for that. Okay. So th this is so good. This so one of the things that immediately gets out is a, a place where our models are different. And it's something that I've gone back and forth on in a lot of ways. So one of the huge differences between what we do and what you do, I think, is that we, when we acquire brands, we, we acquire brands, first of all, much smaller. Uh, I mean, in a manner of speaking, we don't pay a handsome sum for them. Um, we, we, because they're just not big enough to, to demand that. And yep. what we do instead is we bring the founder in, they maintain a portion of equity in their original brand. And then we look towards how we can create an exit together. Um, and I've talked to um, people who have questioned particularly whether or not keeping the founder on, particularly if we're buying businesses that seem kind of stalled out is a good idea yeah. because maybe they're sort of the stalled, the problem with it being stalled out. And my take on this has been that they're not the problem. They just have a different set of skills than, um, than what we have. And it's, it's very similar actually to exactly what you just highlighted, which is that the founder has something typically passion is, is a lot of what they have and like customer knowledge, um, for the thing itself and for the customer itself. Um, and that's, that's what they are like. That's the A number one skill. A lot of times that's what they are. Um, people in my experience are entrepreneurs a lot of times because they love products and they love people. And that's what they're excited about. Nobody is an entrepreneur. I mean, maybe nobody because they love accounting. Like, uh, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just not what it is. So, um, so of course that means that their accounting is bad a lot of times, right? They like, especially in the small stage, they, They've done it. They don't have clarity to their books and that's a mat and all that kind of stuff. And so that's like the tip of the iceberg for ways that we maybe have more skills than they do. Now, what I do think has happened in the last bunch of years is that there's a, an entrepreneurship around tactical marketing that has happened where it's like people who are just really good at Facebook ads and Google ads and things like that. And what they do is they go, why don't we go start brands? Um, because we know how to grow them. And um, I think one of the things that they miss in that is that it's actually harder than it sounds to do that. 
yeah. because without the founder passion, you end up with a little bit of a struggle. So as a baseline, one way in which you and I will compare notes here is that um, for us, keeping the founder on is a big part of how I'm thinking about this product development issue um, in that I am what the thing that I am looking for with that person um, is what I've come to call founder magic. And I am actually increasingly trying to tap into that, that there is something underneath the tactical realities of the business. That is this sort of um, mysterious thing. And it probably presents itself maybe in like conversion rate, I guess, or something that like, or, or sort of product market fit I, I, is probably the way it exists, but that I just have come to call founder magic. And um, what I am thinking about more and more all the time right now is how do I unleash uh, those people, somebody whose head is in the brand. And we like you, you know, you talk to Bill D'Alessandro, for example, and Elements Brands, and, you know, they're all CPG in some way or another. And so I bet you they could actually come up with a one or two VP of product type people who could have yeah. enough overlap in their brands. But we're like you, I mean, our brands are all over the place. The, there's a big difference between off-road wash and skincare, despite that you wash things off ostensibly with both of them. <laughs> um, you cannot use our off-road wash products on your face. Um, I mean, maybe you could, I don't know, but it's not recommended. Um, Disclaimer, so, please don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, so, um, so, so, without, so without I have thought about that. Of it, without making a rabbit hole out of it, let's just compare yeah. notes real quick on the, the retained, yeah. um, retained ownership piece. So I've always struggled with the um, business model of having a hold co where realities of priority and time and effort and opportunity cost are constantly being vied for internally about building campaigns, content, products, just there's a lot that goes on every, every day and every week inside the organization. And I've always felt it be very, very difficult for us as founders, myself, my business partner, Justin, to um, have as a, uh, criteria to think about that we now have a minority partner in one of the brands in the portfolio and managing that relationship. Uh, if we own five or six of them wholly, and then we have one that has a 10% or 15 or 20% partner, um, one partners are, are tricky to manage. Um, my business partner and I have a good relationship. I'm guessing uh, you do with, with yours as well, Andrew, but to have a silent passive partner that's a slice of your portfolio it always felt like such a cognitive load for me as a leader that um, I just had been very reticent to want to tackle that and then worry about the potential um, negative implications if it didn't go well one day. Uh, I love your thought process around solving product development and customer passion with that. I was just never able to come up with a more black and white, less emotional business strategy of, of how to manage all those relationships through time. I mean, if you were trying to like, it's like you've lived in my brain and conversations <laughs> over the last 30 days in particular, like what you are hitting on is the exact cost of doing it this way, which is that like, like you can say everything you like, you know, you, you, you talked about your job when we were just chatting before we started recording of as capital allocation as part of the part of the job. Well, like, yeah. I mean, that is much more complicated when there's humans involved and no matter how much I want to be objective about the business and, all of that. Like there are actual humans who I care about and um, I want to do right by and we, we've tried, you know, and there's elements of like, yeah. And there's some vague expectations sometimes with all of that. So there's no question. This is a big problem. So I'll tell you what we're doing to solve this. Um, initially in this model. Um, well, there's two things. So, so, so in my brain, I have a fantasy of creating one solve to this 
that, um, I think would be awesome, which is that, um, I would create an internal market for shared resources within four by 400 because the allocation of scarce resources, is what you're talking about, um, yep. and markets are the solve to allocations of, of, of scarce resources. So I've thought about trying to create sort of a, um, a market for those resources, um, within four by 400 where, where people who are sort of more individual brand stakeholders could essentially bid on resources in some way or another. I have not done this. I'm not a good enough process thinker to come up with this, but this is the idea that I've had for, for that. At a very I thought about level. this. I thought about this and he's not here. We, we both mentioned now, uh, Bill at Elements Brand. I've, I've, I've had a conversation with him similar to this. Um, they use a brand manager role. And I remember one thing he said that stuck out to me is like- We do too, by the a, way. As, okay. So as a, um, as a business person, whether you're a leader, entrepreneur, brand manager, marketer, whatever, um, there's only so much headspace that you have. And so that time when somebody's in the shower and they're thinking about nothing, what is the thing you think about? If you want to earn the right to be like the thing that gets that front of attention, I can build the best spreadsheet and internal billing model for time and projects and Asana boards and Facebook campaigns and creative. But at the end of the day, there's only you know so much headspace that somebody can give to so many things. Kelsey, I literally, the shower brain is literally my exact example that I use here. It's, it might've been you that said it. Maybe, maybe I attribute it to Bill for... Uh, maybe. Uh, I didn't know, but it's years. totally... That, that's why we put individuals against those brands is because I want somebody who's obsessed with it. Like I want somebody who just is like, I, I don't want them to care about 31 bits or about bamboo if they only care about slick, at least somebody. Um, now I want other people to care about all of it. We've intentionally not done that. And I don't know if that is a strength or glaring weakness in our model. Oh, oh we, I... I yeah, I could be totally wrong about doing it this way, by the way. We've tried to go by functions. We have a marketing team and inside the marketing team, there's folks that work in customer acquisition, folks that work on retention, folks that work on UI, UX and customer experience. Uh, but my business partner, Justin, has to juggle their priorities based on business needs because none of them own one specific brand. They own a responsibility across brands. And um, maybe we haven't solved that the best way, but that's that's where we are today. Yeah, I, I mean... So this is actually one of the things I was going to say is like, I don't know if we're really doing this right. I mean, and I, and obviously with all of these, like right is going to be quote unquote, I just, I just, yeah, well, because there's what it actually is going to be is a trade-off of costs and benefits. And, um, and so right is going to be the one with the most benefits, the least costs, not the one with all benefits and no costs. It's not going to exist because exactly what you're talking about is like, we're struggling trying to come up with creative product development within these brands. And we need to come up with a solution for that when we don't have anybody who's allocated against the brand individually. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to lose for sure. In my opinion, you're going to lose some of the passion for the customer and the brand. It's going to be very hard to replace that. Um, and, uh, and it's not impossible. It's just, it's just a problem yeah. to solve just like everything is. Um, and, and there you go. So the other thing I was going to say is the other way we're trying to solve this founder thing is, um, initially what we had said to founders was, um, our expectation is that we would, our hope was that you would come in, give us your business. Um, and then we would sell to a third party. We would offload the business to somebody else. We increasingly think that's a bad idea for everybody involved in particular because of the roll-up strategy where, uh, sort of a brand's profits in our hands is worth more than it is in others because now we can combine profits across brands and create a larger multiple on those profits um, by having more yep. size and more scale. So, um, and, and the tax implications, everything about valuation of the business, it makes more sense. So what we have said to them recently, and this is, this is just a live and learn thing for us. I mean, it probably should have occurred to us earlier, but, but there you go. Um, so now what we're, we're increasingly saying is what if what we did was, um, we say four by 400 now becomes the source of your liquidity moment, essentially. So you sell the majority of your business to us on when we first acquire you, 
and then the rest of it when when you're ready to have an exit. Um, and so we're actually working on that right now with our founders and saying, here's how we create that opportunity for you. Because we, the thing we don't want to do is keep them forever in a brand where they have no actual path to liquidity. Um, and just, it's like they have worthless equity at that point. So for us, it, the goal is like, let's actually still create that awesome moment for you, but we will be the source of it. Um, and, uh, and that will, that will bring that there. So, and, and in that exit event, what we can do is then maybe trade as part of the deal. Maybe there's some cash up front for their equity, as well as, um, as part of the deal in the longer term, um, they get some four by 400 equity. So if they're going to stay in it and they're going to have an earn out and those sorts of things, they are really pulling fully on the same side of the rope. And that way we're all invested in the same thing, which is the more successful F100 has, the bigger the possibility is for an exit for them and the bigger the possibility is for even more of a, of a liquidity moment later on. So we'll see if it works, but that's kind of the way we're thinking about it right now. And I, I like it as a solution to the problem of sort of people pulling on different sides of the rope with equity, um, et cetera. So, um, so that gets us back to this initial question, which is sort of how are we thinking about product development? So, um, so let me ask you a question about that first. Um, is there, is there an example you can give of, of a particular brand or sort of like, tell me about how you're thinking about product development in your brand journey and like what you're thinking about that relative to sort of the business function. Um, and then, um, give me, give, give maybe me and some people the context for that. Yeah. And then maybe we could talk from there. So it's, it's really been driven by, um, myself and more so my business partner, Justin, um, really up till now. So at, even at five, six brands now, um, and you know, 80 some employees, uh, us as leaders, really him more so than me have been driving that process. Usually the only time I would come down the table about product development was from the marketing side. So kind of the last functional role I'm still heavily involved in is kind of the customer acquisition, Facebook advertising side. And so when I would clearly see that there was a lack of uh, kind of funnel metrics that made sense. So as a whole that we were trying to solve for it was about the only time I would get hopped up on the product development train. Other than that, he's really driven it through um, a very entrepreneurial process. I think he's, he's been very good at it. What we've taken a stab at recently, he took the first stab at it about a week ago. And I just finished a memo actually today before you and I got on the call here to try to put a process around uh, product development and get more of the team involved from marketing from supply chain and operations to some of the people that maybe are passionate about the product, whether they're in customer service or content creation, but maybe have more of an affinity for the category than, than other uh, folks on the team. Uh, so he put together a process whereby anybody in the company can come sponsor a product development idea. Uh, there's actually a cash incentive if the product gets launched and generates a certain amount of sales, not a life changing amount of money, but like it, it's a nice little bonus. And there was a process where every functional department would have um, a step in the review. So the supply chain team would have to go do feasibility of sourcing. Finance team would have to double check the unit economics. Marketing team would have to say, yeah, we can sell this and we think it looks good. Uh, the UI UX team would do some customer development, customer research around it. So he, he rolled that out last week. Uh, and when the team was excited about it, it was, it was well received. Um, today, I finished a memo to try to take that just one step further. I was at a mastermind uh, a week ago and I met one of the founders of Thrasio. They're the billion dollar valuation Amazon FBA role. Two, I think, and, right? Uh, maybe, if maybe, possibly. Yeah. He, he, he just said billion. I, I don't know if it was with yeah. or without the S, but it's, yeah. uh, it's large. Um, yeah. And as one of the founders, he partially because he wants to, partially because he needs to, is still involved in their product development process and they're buying maybe less. Um, passion businesses, you know, if you're selling a, a white label product on Amazon, even at scale, uh, whether it's, you know, I don't know, the stereotypical garlic press or the phone case, you can kind of talk about some of the stereotypical Amazon businesses. 
I think they look for high quality ones, but product development's still a problem to solve for, and they should do it across thousands and thousands of SKUs. And he still has um, some involvement there, which was both uh, reassuring that, you know, even smarter, more successful people than I haven't, haven't solved it yet. And also a bit frustrating because there, there was, was no clear answer. Um, but what I came up with in, in my memo that I finished today, I'm going to get to the team is like, we're going to write up a one page thesis for every new product. I put like a framework to it that how I would look at it as an entrepreneur to see if I can get people on our teams to start thinking more entrepreneurially about the product development process. So the first step is like, where does this what, product what, exist? What, just really fast. What do you mean thinking more entrepreneurially? Like um, what is it? What does that phrase mean to you? It means thinking as though you were the financial outcome owner of the decision holistically. So if the idea is, hey, we should really have this, this one product over here because you know it's a good add-on and it moves customer lifetime value by three cents across tens of thousands of customers, but it's like the accessory product that you know a competitor sells, does it really move the needle? Do we really need to spend time on doing that? Is it really a great idea? Um, or does somebody just feel like, hey, my job's product development, and so I checked the box of, of having done it this week? Um, so I, I try to divide this process into like, are we developing products that are like entry products we can advertise? We developing cross sell, cross sell, upsell accessory products, or are we developing like a catalog of back end products to sell uh, farther down the customer journey, purchases two, three, and onward? Um, and just kind of put a framework to what a one page document needs to look like. What are we calling it? How's it priced? Have we done any uh, merchandising heuristics of how competitors are, are, are selling this? What's the voice of customer on Amazon reviews for that product from competitors? What survey data do we have? How are we going to package it? How are we going to label it? What features, functionality, unique selling propositions does the product have? If you were to mock up the product page, what features and benefits would we put on there? What's the, uh, the hopeful volume of them we're going to sell? How much revenue is that? If we take a stab at the cogs, how much contribution margin is that? just to try to get a full snapshot of an entire um, entrepreneurial decision-making process in a template that will then let more people chime in in a more structured way to try to make better decisions. Yeah, I like the idea of sort of um, raising the bar of what it means to submit an idea uh, mm. by like having somebody that like, if there's a higher barrier to entry with what you're talking about, it's going to make it so that you don't just get like sort of a bunch of half thought through yeah. little nothing ideas. Um, what I wonder about is if you'll also lose any of, if that, that will be a like creativity killer for the kind of person who otherwise has sort of the founder magic brain, you know, like um, that they'll go like, oh, I don't want to go through all those steps to, da, 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 you know, which might, I mean, again, that, that's probably part of what you want there as you're trying to solve that a little bit. Um, but like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm what I'm thinking. The example I'm thinking of actually is there's a Planet Money episode, um, uh, NPR podcast, a week or two ago about the guy who invented flaming hot Cheetos. Uh, okay. Did did you hear about this? Anyway, so the guy who were he was a janitor at um, a custodial worker at, at uh, Frito Lay. Um, he was a Hispanic guy. I think he was of Mexican descent, um, and basically he was like helping stock. Uh, sort of on free time as a hardworking guy helping stock free to lay products in convenience stores and stuff like that. 
and yeah. realized that there was that everything was sort of flavorless relative to what he and his Mexican friends were <laughs> consuming. And so he just went one day and like his wife made a salsa with the flavor that he wanted and just sort of like, he just got excited and passionate about it. And, um, and he, uh, got some, some Cheetos that didn't have any cheese on them somehow that came off the production line. He just went and got them in a bag and, uh, you know, this is according to him a bunch of years ago and came back with the first version of, of Flamin' Hot Cheetos and it made its way That's to awesome. the CEO. And, um, and the CEO came and tried it and, and talked to him about it, et cetera. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is like, that's not a process. Right. And, and like, you probably can't, uh, just hope for that all the time as the way to do this. But what I'm getting at is like, I think there's something to be said about like, is there a way to take people who are like, is there a way to take people who, who have built, like you mentioned, like people who have sort of built in passion for any one of your brands and get them to just be creative and, and think in interesting ways. And then I, and then what if like you or somebody else on your team could kind of come around them with the economics uh, essentially, and with like the business side of things, like, so could you almost like what I'm saying is like, is there a way to sort of separate those two things out a little bit more than what you're trying to accomplish? And this is just me spitballing here a little bit, but, yeah. but it's exactly, exactly what I'm wrestling with Kelsey. Like, like I'm sitting here going like, I have people who think these creative ideas through, but then I also have somebody who's like, for us, like we've looked at it as sort of like an expected effect on revenue per click. That's like literally yeah. the way we measure it is going like, okay, if we do this and it attracts 5% more sales and customer acquisition, plus gets 5% more value on retention or whatever, you know, um, then that gives, makes every click this much more valuable to me. And so here's the net effect of it. Right. And I don't necessarily think the person who can do that work very well is, is often the person in my experience. And I, I'm, I'm not a super creative person. So this is tricky for me, but like the person who can do the math really well and who like loves to dig into that problem is often not the person who has the product idea. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, do you feel like there's any risk for you that you're trying to shove those two things together? Uh, there, there probably is. Um, that's, <laughs> that's good, uh, constructive feedback. And there's a fine line, um, with creatives and people that are passionate where you, you do want, uh, all the ideas, but sometimes somebody with product passion um, might not make the greatest business decision, frankly. Uh, uh, no, so I'm, there's I'm looking, no question. I'm looking at the slick products website right now. So like I'm thinking about yeah. like what an yeah. example would be. So if I go to my garage, and I get a little tiny micro detailing brush for the vents in, you know, on the cracks between the seat, it's a two ninety nine product. Like, what would that really do for LTV? But man, if I love detailing my car, you don't sell this product. This is the greatest thing ever, man. You got to have these. It's only three bucks. Everybody's going to buy one. And you start doing the math and like, how's that conversation for you or me as a business leader when the passionate product person might have to tell them, hey, really appreciate your passion around this product, but it, no, it doesn't make business sense. It's not a good financial decision. So striking okay, so, that balance is hard. So check this out on the other side. We have for Bamboo Earth. So there's, I can give you two exact examples of this. To, exactly to your point there, um, when you wash a dirt bike, um, it's typically, it's helpful to have um, an exhaust plug so that you don't spray a bunch of Makes soap sense. up into the exhaust, right? Um, I mean, that's a $3, $5 thing made in China, made out of plastic, right? Like, um, and we don't have it in our dirt bike wash kit. And then we've thought for a while, should we add it? But of course, the reason we haven't added it is obvious, which is that like, is it going to make a meaningful impact on the business? Meh. Probably but not. This is, this is where I really wonder if what we are losing, if, if, if somewhere, and like, this is so hard for me to measure, but like, 
if somewhere deep in the subconscious of the customer, what that what you're losing by not having that is just a little bit or just like that touch of authenticity or something where it's like, if you have that in there, what it would say is like, these people really understand what it means to wash a dirt bike, you know, or these people really understand what it means to detail a car uh, to your example. Um, and on the other hand, for bamboo earth, we have these, these uh, reusable facial pads. Um, they're made out of bamboo and like people absolutely love using them. Um, apparently I, I, uh, anecdotally, people love. Is it using... part of your nighttime routine? Every right. Night you grab, you grab one. Uh, uh, I just recently ordered my first <laughs> products, which is also my first, which is my first skincare products ever. In part because the founder was like, Andrew, I'm going to kill you if you don't try our product out. And I was like, that's fair. <laughs> um, so, um, so, but 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 uh, other people say they love these facial pads. The thing is, these facial pads made out of bamboo. They last for a long time because they're reusable and they're washable, which is good for the environment, fits the brand claims, et cetera. Um, but also um, they have terrible margins. It's like 24 bucks for 15 of them. They're expensive and they're, they're like relative to our other products. They're very, very low margin. But here's the thing. I recently just went and looked in our, um, in our LTV software, statless.io. You can go sign up for that. Now it's now available to everybody. Um, it, it, you can see, um, repeat purchase rate by first product purchased. So I can go look and I can sort by like, if a person purchased X product, what, you know, how, how good is their LTV? And for Bamboo Earth, what I can tell you for sure is that people who buy a kit from us um, are much higher LTV customers than people who buy any individual product, which is intuitive. Um, but so, so once you get past kits, one of the next highest LTV products for us is these facial pads. And I thought to myself, like, man, I don't even really want to include them in an order. They're paying to source their, their low LTV. But theoretically, what's happening here is that somebody is applying their toner with that and it's comfortable and soft and it makes the product experience that much better. And while at first it doesn't look like there's really a great business case to be made for it, like maybe long-term there is. And, and what I'm saying is that like in that experience, there's something so close at the end of the day to the customer experience that it's like, maybe there are some benefits here that's hard for me to track by being disconnected yeah. from the magic a little bit, you know? Um, so I, I mean, I, this is always a trade-off like, you know, the math has to work too. And it's that simple, but, um, yeah. It's like the classic, like, um, I think it's what Costco or the, you could buy the, the whole chicken for five bucks, uh, and they lose money on every one of them. It's their, their big loss leader. Like, uh, that's part of the challenge of, buying brands is the things you don't know about the nuanced part of the customer journey that, yeah, we can have analytics and customer cohorts and we can run a lot of reports. Um, but having an unlock and figuring out that the facial pads are more valuable than they seem on a contribution margin per order basis. Um, exactly. makes a lot of sense. I'll bet you, if you were to take that, that dirt bike plug and put that as one of your images in the image gallery about like, we get you, probably doesn't, um, move the needle in a measurable way. I bet you have a better business. That's what I think too. I, I think it's like, what are we doing? Not you know, I don't know, but yeah. we just haven't gotten to it, you know, cause it's, it's hard to make that even a priority. And this is where like business process comes in too. It's like, yeah. Yep. So, so let me ask you another question, another way of solving this. So, I mean, I like what you're doing. I actually might steal your, your like thesis idea. One thing I like is, I think this is a Bezos thing too, is sort of like, before you submit an idea, you, you have to write it out because writing yes. is an active writing is an active thinking and it forces you to think better and harder. Um, I'm a big journaler. Like I sort of personally, and like beyond this, like a templatization idea of, of doing that, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I may steal that, but, um, um, 
Oh man, I just lost my train of thought completely. Uh, I'll interrupt you and help. I have done yeah. more writing in the last 12 months than the, all the years combined prior. And it is definitely helpful. I'm, I'm much more um, of a verbal communicator. I'd rather sit down and, and chat with you for two hours than uh, write up a, a six page document. But to get clear, concise uh, plans and thoughts to a group of people that are on a team that I have to lead has been one of the biggest unlocks that I've had, even with my business partner at an executive level, like that practice has been um, super, super helpful. So if we don't solve product development live on this call and everybody's just here listening to us, um, having our catharsis of comparing more stories, the one takeaway is you should write things down and force yourself to do yeah. that. Cause that has been a, uh, a clear winner for, for us operational. I can, I can wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I need to do that more. Um, that's really good. Um, in fact, I'd love to hear at some point more about sort of how you're even utilizing that. Like, what is the process you write? What, and how do you get it to somebody, et cetera. I did remember what I was gonna say, which is, um, I've actually cited this other example of, um, you guys are super vertically integrated, you said, um, and that includes Correct. production and supply chain, right? Whenever possible. Yeah. So for uh, a number of SKUs, we do a significant part of the manufacturing or kitting or assembly process in our facility uh, and some SKUs. So like in our fermentation brand, we actually have a commercially licensed kitchen in our facility and we're actually fermenting and harvesting the product that we sell. That's awesome. Yeah. So we do a fair amount of that as well with, um, with one of our brands. I would love to do with more of them. Um, so it's a great so margin driver built, builds a lot of moat around the business. Like there's a lot of reasons why I'm really passionate about that as a strategy. Yeah. And in terms of like the ability to change things on the fly, just like don't yep. interrupt the production process is so nice. Cause it's just the production team through. loves when the, when the marketing team and the, the CEO come downstairs and say, Hey guys, we're going to do it a new way. My supply chain guy kills me. He's like, well, yeah, but you, like, like <laughs> how come all of a sudden we're selling so much more of this product than that product and the forecast that we'd sell that product, not this product. And the answer is because we had an ad that hit, I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> like, so, um, but anyway, um, uh, my poor, the poor guy. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, so I've talked about the example of ColourPop on here, makeup brand. Um, they can, um, create and produce, um, ideas from, uh, with basically no MOQ cause they produce as well themselves, at least initial versions of it, get, um, from idea to sort of produce that enough scale for their customer base, which is significant. They will test new colors on the site and new makeups, um, products on the site within like, I think 10 to 14 days, basically. So it's just like from idea through test live on the site, it's that fast. So part, here's part of my question for you is sort of like, especially in some of the brands that you're talking about, where I suspect you're talking about sort of products that are similar enough to your core product. It's not like totally out of left field. Could you, could you make that the thing that you guys are actually great at on the, um, on the, uh, product development side. So instead of worrying too much about getting the product right, could you make it so that you, uh, uh, fail fast and fail small, um, when you have the product wrong and so that you just build in the volatility and then build process around incessant iteration. So you just take, here's the next 10 product ideas for this company. And we're just going to, because I'm, I'm assuming that you have basically, you don't have to deal with MOQs and massive production timelines in quite the same way that you would, if you're going from third party, you know, vendors or whatever. So um, what if, so this is just a, just a thought, but what if you took this and said like, forget trying to figure out the right idea in advance at all. Um, as long as the math basically works and there's the core of a basic idea here, 
could we sort of create a skunk works team or something like that, that just like, uh, is constantly launching and testing new products on our site. Uh, I like that. I think we have, um, some elements of that, certainly not to the degree of, um, the folks at ColorPop. Um, well, no, yeah, nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> they also have a few more dollars than I have. And then you have, so. Yeah. Um, uh, holistically, I, I like the idea. I think it applies in varying, varying degrees to various product lines or, or brands that we have, or that you have, but I think that that is also a good strategy. Um, my only concern just holistically about that would be um, customer experience and brand reputation. Um, there's, there's a little bit of yeah, that's a good point. unknown with the turnover. And you can always do the right thing by the customer and you know refund it or credit shipping or replace it or whatever you need to do. But um, I do just think about that a little bit as far as quality. We tend to be buying brands that are older, 5, 10, sometimes 15 years old. Um, and so a lot of them have kind of moat in the form of like brand traffic, direct none traffic, and just general awareness in a submarket. I also spend time thinking about like in a niche or a submarket, is there even um, a certain amount of growth that even can be achieved? If even if I came up with the newest, best thing and had the best ad in the world, are there enough humans that want it? It's always on my mind as well. Um, the broader, bigger markets like makeup. Uh, or skincare alleviate that a little bit. So I think as a leader, there's some strategy to picking those bets. Yeah. Okay. So then I think two things, first of all, if that's, if you really believe that you have a total addressable market problem there, then I, my response to that is then don't bother with the product development. Like then, then it's like not the best use of your time. Right. Like Agreed. if if you think the upside isn't that significant, then it, then it's probably not worth the work. But then secondly, what I'd say is uh, maybe what you do, do then is use this as an opportunity for taking a hyper dedicated subgroup of customers and even creating sort of a gated community of, of people who are your product testers. So, so what you do is you say like, Hey, and, and this, this becomes, you know, this is your high LTV super VIPs. Yeah, I like you, know, it. You, you could, you could make this into something that's even aspirational for your customers and could directly connect you to them, which is maybe part of where to find some of that founder magic um, is actually in the customers themselves. We're using the product all the time. And then you say to them, which we're going to do this with Bamboo. Like for Bamboo Earth, we're going to release an um, an, an eye duo, like an under eye cream, et cetera, which is sort of a product we needed to, to have for a long time. And there's plenty of Bamboo Earth customers who have been using this as their skincare routine for, you know, across multiple years and 25 orders and whatever, you know. So um, we can take those people and say, hey, we really appreciate your loyalty. Um, would you like some free product of this new thing that we're trying? Or like, and that, you know, that's, that's your super inner tier. There's 20 people on that list, you know, or whatever. Here's the free product. And then from there, maybe the next group down is like for the first batch, you get 50% off. Do you want to try this early? We just ask for your feedback, et cetera. Um, and then for them, it's like a little something where they can actually be involved in the brand if they're passionate about it and they're excited about it. And then you don't run the risk of sort of like going to mass market right away with something that stinks. Yeah. Um, I buy a fair amount of, uh, probably all of my workout gear from a brand called 10,000 and they are like yeah. masters of this. Have you seen their stuff? Yeah, they actually used to be a CTC client a while back. So yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, like they launched like uh, the first hundred people that want this can buy it. They're all samples and all you have to do is let us know what you think and we'll make the one you guys all love and it's super low priced and no guarantee you're going to love all of them, but it's six different shirt ideas. Uh, I think they sold out in like four minutes or something silly. 
yeah, but see, I bet people love it. Like, and yeah. it's fun to get to try it. You get a good deal. Like, um, and then they get the information. So it, I wonder, I guess what I'm saying is like, it sounds to me like your unique advantage as a company is this vertical integration piece among other things. Um, and so if you could sort of leverage that and sort like of customers into assist it, in product development, right. From product tests all the way through product of product, uh, product test, um, product, uh, manufacturing all the way through product testing and, and yeah. marketing side, um, get the feedback and then use that as your way to decide what actually goes to market. And I wonder if that way it cuts off some of the internal uh, or some of the guesswork on the front end, you know, and I would imagine it'd be relatively low cost. So just a thought. Love it. It's a good idea. Yeah. Um, And then the other thought there is um, I'm going to send, I'm going to see if I can get some born primitive stuff sent your way and you can compare it to your 10,000 stuff because that's all of my workout stuff. And I'm a huge fan. They're a long time CTC client. And uh, do you, do you wear the the, the jorts? Are you a jorts guy? Oh, so, you know, born primitive. Um, I haven't tried the jorts. I don't, I don't have it in me to do the jorts. So yeah, but uh, yeah, there's, I wear almost, almost everything else that I wear for workouts is them. Awesome. I love it. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, so, um, okay. So if I may, I, let's bounce yeah, back just real quick. So, please. Um, if you believe Tam is a limiting factor on a brand, so you guys just sold the baseball glove wallet business. Yes. And this was one of the reasons why. Was it a Tam limitation or supply chain limitation first and foremost in your mind? So it's both, which one was bigger for you? So actually there have been a lot of baseball gloves used in America for a long time. I mean, and around say nothing of around the world. So I actually don't think there's a significant supply chain limitation relative to that product. What it really was at the core is two things. One of them was, um, the things that, especially at the time that we are, we are best at is like tactical marketing stuff. Um, related to Facebook, Google, email, et cetera. Um, CPC, RPU. Yep. That's right. And we, we felt like, um, we had tapped that out relative to upside, upside to growth. So we thought let's take the money out of that and put it into some other stuff. I might've been a mistake. Um, and, and I say that just because we have learned some things since then that have made me go like, huh, I wonder if we had held on to this. I mean, it was the right move at the time, given the knowledge that we sure. had. Um, and so, but I just mean, as you analyze it a little more objectively, with a little more distance, I wonder if we would have done that again. Um, but the second thing, less than total addressable market for that product per se, I would say the actual thing that we really struggled with was product development. Um, and it was mm-hmm. around like, what do you sell somebody after they take a baseball glove wallet and they love it and they do love it. But like, as you can imagine, the LTV on that product is almost nothing. Once you have one baseball glove wallet, you do not need another one. Um, and so we had, we had like goofed around with some hats and some shirts and some of that and tried some other side product keychains and, and toiletry bags, but nothing really that was meaningful in the business. And if I could go, if I was running FC today and I'm still in contact with them to some degree and they're, they are doing the new owners are doing this to their credit. Um, what I would do is I would think a lot harder about, um, sort of really making sure that we were core to the community, not just running Facebook ads, but like seeding like crazy and just like making it so that every baseball fan everywhere loved this brand, um, as a brand that was doing something really cool, um, content I would think about in some ways around that. Um, and then I would think a lot about developing a serious product development timeline. And I think I would probably do it with some of these VIP users first. So um, I would be, I would, be, I would take these hats that we had, right? We did like these mock-up old Phillies and Padres hats as part of this thing. Nice. We did. And they just said FC instead of 
Philadelphia, whatever. Um, I'm not wearing mine now, but I wear it all the time. I love it. And I would just be releasing those constantly, just like every couple of weeks, there'd be two or three of them and see if you could kind of make that into a new part of the brand and uh, et cetera. So it's funny. It's, it's a, FC goods is actually a great example of this problem a little bit, which is, and, and for me, it, it also illustrates why I'm thinking about this, which is that like, um, a lot of my time, sort of how I got to my job even has been around this idea of like growth marketing and what I've underplayed in that. And because I was on the agency side for a lot of that, and I was on the marketing team at Kalo in the early days is like, I just really didn't understand how big of a role product releases in your in your sort of marketing calendar really were or like or how big of a role they really played as a way to generate both customer acquisition and LTV. Um, and yeah. so this is part of what I'm thinking about a lot right now is sort of like for, like for modern fuel for our pen and pencil brand. I mean, that brand will only grow based on its ability to create new products or it will cap. I mean, it just will. Um, I and think so the, the four yeah. peaks piece that Taylor put out, I don't know if I you involved yeah. in there, but like that, that to me was like a light bulb moment. You were just hitting on it of like marrying up product development around the calendar and being strategic about it, proactive. That is, um, that is talked about too little compared to the amount of like hacks for Facebook and algorithm clicks and email. All that stuff like, runs out. All, yeah. all of the, at some point you can't just keep making your CAC better. You have yeah. to find other ways to have a real brand. And this is, this comes back to my point earlier, which is that like a lot of people who are currently in the entrepreneurial e-commerce space are actually tactical marketers. They're not really product people. Yeah. And this is the, this is the piece that they don't understand is that at some point that stuff taps and you, I mean, if you get the right product and you, I mean, you could be sort of methodical about product selection here, the way that Thrasio is on Amazon and think about the same thing with sort of Shopify or whatever. And you, yeah. you could, if you are that person, you could probably build a great, 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 great business that way. Um, but most brands I think are not going to really function based purely on sort of like hacking the unit economics relative to the CAC, et cetera, you know? Yep. I'm, uh, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So for me, this is exactly what I've been thinking about product development is going like, this is, there's gotta be a way for us to, to do a better job. Um, and I think this is varies brand to brand. So like for slick, Oh, for sure. Everything I care about for slick right now really is just being more core to the off-road space. The more that it is like slick is the thing that you wash your ATV, UTV or dirt bike with the more we win. And so like that to me is like the marketing challenge for that brand. And like, again, founder magic, like Brian who founded that and runs that brand now for us today, he is core to that space. He grew up riding dirt bikes. I've sat, eight rows up from the field at a moto event with him and watched him get excited about it. Like, you know, whereas yeah. I'm, while well, he explains to me what the heck I'm watching, like I'm a baseball guy. I don't know. So, um, so, and then on the other hand, like for, for, um, for bamboo earth, right. It's all about like getting people into more of the products, even though we already sell, if you love our moisturizer, make sure we get you a toner as well, et cetera. And that tends to do a good job for LTV. Now for modern fuel, like I said, like, that brand and for genuine canine for us, it's all about the ability to add products to the mix that are going to maximize the value of the customer who finds one quality product that they absolutely love. And it's really cool. And they can get excited about. And then it's just this matter of like, how many products can we release every year and make people more and more and more excited LTV and, uh, and acquisition. So that's why I'm thinking like, man, it's so different for each of those brands for me. I don't even know how I think about this holistically. Yep. Uh, this has been uh, a fantastic conversation and a couple of your ideas are going to make its way into my, uh, my notes here for handing some things off to the team in this memo. So this has been fun. Yeah. Thanks, man. Me, actually, I mean, it's like with always uh, with all this kind of stuff, right. It's um, 
it's just really stimulating. I think for me, the takeaway here is, uh, prep better, which is, I, I love this, like create exactly every element of what you're trying to accomplish with the new product. I would say for bamboo, we actually could do this more like test fast kind of approach, but that's the only brand of ours that we own the production for. So we can't do that yep. for everything. So like actually think through the idea a little bit more. I do have founders. I could probably go to them and say, bring me your ideas and let's, let me get a team together to actually turn this into a memo and a templatized process. I'm going to for sure follow up and ask you for what your, that memo you wrote today. And like, here's all the things you want to see. Um, and so, yeah, so I hope this has been, uh, yeah, I hope it's helpful for you. Here's my ask for you back Kelsey uh, at the end, which is, um, if this has been helpful at all, if you implement this at some point, you got to come back on and talk about it and, uh, just see how it's working and what, what things are we not seeing and, and all that now. We will, uh, we'll make that happen. I'm looking forward right, to it. Uh, all right. I appreciate it. That's, uh, uh, hopefully that's been helpful to you as a listener as well. And, uh, yeah. And if not, then well. Andrew and I had a great time and we're just glad you listened in because we solved all of our, uh, all of our emotional needs here debating, uh, better ways to, uh, to run our businesses. So thank you for listening. Did we debate? Was there debate in there? A little back and forth. It was good. <laughs> I, I, I think we, we agreed on nearly everything, which it would have been more fun if we had found something to disagree on, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. For a first call ever, like who knows, maybe we would have gotten on here and really clashed, which would have been fun. <laughs> would have been fun. <laughs> D- didn't know what we were going to get. Uh, you're a nice guy. So it didn't work out that way. So there you go. Um, all right. Thanks for listening so much. As always, I really appreciate it. Um, if you would like to uh, hear more of this, subscribe to the e-commerce playbook podcast, of course, uh, go back to old episodes. Um, and uh, and always, I'm so grateful if you'll tell a friend about it, if there's somebody you work with. Um, uh, we'd love we'd love it. We'd love it always if you would pass along to somebody like that. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris or email me at podcast at 4x400.com. I really do see all those. Check my DMs daily, etc. So there you go. Kelsey, do you want to send people somewhere? Uh, should should uh, people come work for you? Should people tweet at you? Yeah, should, no, should they buy your products? That. What should they do? Yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kelsey Larrick. You can find our website 365-holdings.com. If you're in Northeast Ohio, we tend to hire local on-site. So we'd, we'd love to, uh, to know about you and have you in. And um, if you are interested in uh, all things e-commerce, we've got a, a newsletter sign up on the website. A lot of our writing goes out there publicly for things we're thinking about. So to the extent you want to hear more from me, uh, feel free to sign up. But uh, just glad to be on here and have a chance to uh, chat with you and compare notes on products. So thank you. All right. Thanks very much. And we'll see you next week.